0: Hello and welcome to The X-Ray. I'm Fernando Espuelas. Are you hearing about fascism everywhere? Stories about politicians who are acting like fascists, fascist movements, the Proud Boys. What's all this about? It does sound at some level like we're under the threat of fascism. But is that real or is this simply another media story or even less than that, a set of political insults to shorthand to criticize the other side? Today I'm going to be speaking with Ruth Ben-Ghiat. She is a professor of history at New York University and the author of the best-selling book Strongmen, which is a very profound <laughs> analysis of the last 100 years of fascism. We're going to try to figure this out. A little bit later i'm going to also be speaking with michael steele the former chairman of the republican party and msnbc contributor and i have to admit he's a bit of a guinea pig on this podcast because he is the first person to be interviewed for x-ray vision which is a new a new kind of interview that looks to explore the real person behind the political title. We'll see how that goes. But first, my conversation with Ruth Ben-Ghiat. Is fascism really a threat? Ruth Ben-Ghiat, welcome to The X-Ray. Thank you. So let me start out with uh, something that's happening in the political environment. There's a lot of talk of fascism in America, uh, maybe even proto-fascists, if we want to be more precise. And in particular, after this massive disclosure uh, around the Dominion lawsuit that Fox News uh, essentially distorted reality to gain ratings, went along with Trump's big lie, Um, are, are we actually Slouching towards some sort of uh, fascist outcome here, uh, pending the twenty twenty four election and and potentially uh, President Trump being reelected.
1: Well, we're certainly on that path. It's a lot of the, the reason I wrote my book Strong was to help people to understand what fascism might look like today, <laughs> because uh, today, um, although there are one party states like North Korea, um, it it doesn't work the same way. So, in a place like a right-wing, you know, autocracies like Orban's Hungary or even Putin's Russia, which is can be safely called fascist today, you you keep elections going. You don't ban elections. You often have uh, other parties um, active, but you game the electoral system so that uh, the result is the one you need to stay in power. Um, so, but certainly if you look at the direction the Republican party has taken, especially, uh, after January 6th, I now call it an autocratic party. It's as though <laughs> we have, um, a force for autocracy, um, that is aligned, not with the democracies of the world, but mostly most of the people in the Republican party, Uh, see Orban and Bolsonaro and even Putin as their allies and kindred spirits. So half the country, uh, politically speaking, is um, veered or oriented to autocracy and the other half is um, democratic and progressive.
0: And can you explain uh, the psychological dimensions of that? Because obviously, uh, the United States has its own history of, of democracy, imperfect uh, in many, many ways, but certainly no uh, dictators. Uh, there has been, uh, at least with Trump, uh, and I don't know, an experience of aggressiveness of, of verbal violence, which then, of course, became physical violence in January six. Uh, what drives that appeal uh, for an authoritarian figure?
1: So part of the reason I I wrote the book was also to look for patterns in a hundred years of right-wing authoritarianism. Um, And I chose, uh, I have Gaddafi in there and he's left-wing, but um, I wanted, there are lots of histories of communism, but I hadn't seen a history that goes from the fascist right-wing military dictatorships up to people like Orban and Trump today. So one of the Uh, the questions of course I was interested in is what you just asked when when and why do these leaders appeal and over and over it's when a a society has gone through a lot of rapid change or change that's perceived as rapid it could be um, an emancipating certain groups it could be workers rights uh, racial equity gender equity and it's in those moments um And also when many people feel that the political system as constituted isn't speaking to them, isn't answering their needs. And so these strongman figures, uh, they kind of come onto the stage and they scan the political marketplace and they have a very good instinct, and Trump had this, of what will work and who the audience should be. And remember, Trump is a marketer, but many of them... Like you know, Mussolini was a journalist, and he also had a very good vision. So they'll kind of address themselves to any kind of void that they see. So what does so we were very well placed in 2016 because many people never accepted eight years of an African American president. They didn't accept his legalization of same-sex marriage, admitting women into combat, um, you know, be, the progressive agenda for for worker rights and, and increased union activity. So Trump kind of scanned the political marketplace and appealed to all racists, all extremists of various types, and also um individuated this kind of white rural working class um, you know, constituency that feeling felt very threatened because when there's a lot of change, and in Euro-American context, it's white males and white people who feel threatened. And so then you have Um, propitious ground for conspiracy theories like great replacement theory, we're going to be, you know, we're going to be extinct. White males are going to be extinct. So he, he went in there and he said, you are the forgotten. I will save you. Right. And so that was a very clear um, agenda, but it fits with the agenda that's been going on in various iterations since uh, the original fascists.
0: So you, you you do point in your book uh, to to these patterns that get repeated uh, consciously. I, one assumes that um, you know someone like uh, Steve Bannon who has a passion for. Fascist thought, as far as I can tell, uh, obviously is, is contemplating strategies in that context. Uh, he's written about the taking of the Winter Palace in 1917, what was a quick shock attack to the Tsarist, uh, structure, symbolic structure, at least, uh, which in some ways seems to echo the January 6th attempt, right? Uh, but you, you talk about this phenomena of these strongmen, uh, d- destroying democracy from within. Uh, what what's that about, and and how do we see that manifested in our own system?
1: Yeah, so um, there there still are some military coups going on in the world, but mostly because uh, you know you come to power through elections, there is uh, they they get elected legally, and then they have to do everything in their power to destroy trust in in, in democratic institutions. Uh, foremost of all, voting. So Trump, for example, did with Bannon's help, did everything possible to corrode the idea of election integrity in voters' minds, in the public's minds. And he was relentless from 2016. This didn't start in 2020. It was possible this big lie and all the things that the party did also to help him, the GOP, were possible because he. this has been his agenda all along. And another example, which is perhaps even more notable, uh, is in Brazil, um, Bolsonaro from the very, so they start this the minute they get into office. They don't do it only when they lose an election. By the time the election comes, if they've done their jobs right, the public is already uh, set to uh, dispute any election that their hero will lose because the idea of elections has been corroded. And Bolsonaro, uh, who was ad- advised by Bannon, is still advised by Bannon. So that's a link there. It's notable there because um, election fraud was not a big theme in Brazil. It was virtually non-existent. So right. this was imported. <laughs> imported. But along the line of one of the questions I'm asked very often is, you know, we all know Trump doesn't really read. he He's not a book learner. So, you know, where is he getting this? And the people... Uh, it wasn't until I wrote Strongman that I realized he had gathered around him a lot of people who had decades of experience uh, trying to wreck democracies. So you mentioned Bannon, who's uh, a very astute, you know, far-right propagandist and operative. And the idea of this, sh- I call it shock event. Um, and that's why they started off, as soon as they got into power, 2017, they started off with the ban on travel from Muslim countries and this was engineered to produce chaos and that was a shock event Um, Mm. but um, he also had Roger Stone and Paul Manafort who had a lobby um, firm from the 1980s that specialized in uh, helping dictators and they one of their clients was Ferdinand Marcos And in what
0: a nice niche for a consultancy,
1: (laughs) exactly. And in 1985, they were hired by Ferdinand Marcos uh, because he he was doing badly uh, in his power. He felt threatened, and he wanted to have like a fraudulent snap election. So Mm. so they were hired to pull this off. So when you think about, and there's many more characters um, who he had around him he had lots of wisdom about how to take down a democracy from the very beginning.
0: And what's your theory? Is it, by the way, I should mention that when Trump went down those stairs and um, essentially accused uh, Mexican immigrants, male Mexican immigrants immigrants of being rapists and, and so forth, I thought, oh, okay, this is a suicide mission. This is going to crash and burn. But in fact, that found an audience, right? And it was a very powerful audience. And it was a real signal of these are the others and we're going to reject them. But Aside from the uh, tactical nature of that action, i.e. gathering support from those groups, do you have a sense that that Trump actually has this vision of himself as the maximum leader, the superman, the strongman? Or is it more a a collection of, I don't know, uh, impulses that together add up to some kind of uh, urge for dictatorship?
1: No, he's very methodical. In fact, uh, the speech he just gave for uh, CPAC, the political, is a fascist, a quintessential fascist speech. I'm, I'm writing about this for my uh, newsletter. For Lucid,
0: it's, yeah, which by the way I recommend to everyone is a fantastic yeah, newsletter. Yes, a
1: Substack newsletter. And uh, no, he's very. The thing is, when people said that would say, they still say that Trump is lazy, or he's incompetent. It it's a misread because he his goals were never those of any other American president. He he didn't care about governing. What he cared about was uh, propagandizing, and he's a brilliant propagandist. He's extremely skilled. Um, he would never have pulled off the big lie, um, and so even in this latest speech, he repeats. Uh, remember his tweets? Now he doesn't. He got kicked off Twitter, but yeah. remember how he would capitalize things, or he would—that's to direct the eye because he's a he's a visual person because he comes from TV too. He everything he does is very intentional. And he repeats certain messages over and over for years. And uh, when I worked with the January sixth committee, um, and I, I was interviewed and I wrote a report, they were interested in his uh, live live communications and rallies, and how he used his rallies to um, change people's ideas of violence from something right. perhaps you know, distasteful to something that might be necessary. And so my report included a section where from 2015, over and over again, he relentlessly talked about in the good old days, we could beat people up. And, you know, this was against protesters. But then of course, when he's in office as president, the roster of people who deserve violence um, hugely expanded until we got to, you know, we got to January 6th, um, where people, even were okay, bashing the heads of Capitol police, which was kind of a no-no for Republicans, the law and order party. So he so he worked really hard at propaganda, and he also worked hard at uh, using the presidency to make money for a Trump organization. He spent one out of every three days visiting a Trump branded property during his presidency. The Washington Post uh, calculated that one out of every, so a third of his time. So it wasn't that he he, was uh, undisciplined or lazy. It was that he was putting his energies to things that people didn't recognize as being part of the president's job because he isn't a, a, a democratic president. He's an autocrat. <laughs> so yeah. That's, yeah, yeah. that's to answer your question. He He's extremely guided. He has a very strong sense of uh, what kind of leadership he wants to embody, and that's why he cites Xi Jinping and Putin Uh, and Orban, it's a different vision than Americans have had before.
0: And, and it also has this, uh, bizarre quality to it, right? Which is this, uh, attenuated masculinity. Uh, I think you referred to it as virility, right? Uh, in your, in your writings, uh, the idea that, uh, he is strong and therefore he backs other strong men, literally, um, in, in Russia and North Korea and other places. Uh, what, what's that about? Is, is, and more than, trying to dive into his head but how is that seen by the people that that want to follow him or are turned on by by that kind of language
1: yeah so it's really easy to just laugh at it you know we see putin strutting around with no shirt on and it seems ridiculous to us but so i i added this chapter and it's the this is the first book that looks at like authoritarian tools of rule that includes masculinity right up there with propaganda and violence, because they in, it interacts. So the virility thing, the idea that you're the man above all other men, is part of the personality cult, and Trump developed one. Uh, all these leaders have one. And it interacts with the other tools. So he's not just the man above all other men. He's the man who's untouchable. He can get away with things other men cannot.
0: Shooting someone on Fifth Avenue, for example.
1: That's it. That was the biggest red flag um, that we had. That and the comment about Mexicans as rapists. Those were the. Right. Those were two of the uh, the, the foundations, and they were launched very early. And the fact that he wasn't immediately, um, uh, you know, expelled from uh, the GOP lineup of candidates was uh, that that was the original sin, let's say. Um, And and in fact, I tracked very carefully because I was I was terrified being a scholar of fascism uh, when he said that thing in very early in his campaign, January 2016, that he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue. And it was two weeks after that, that Senator Jeff Sessions brought him into the GOP and endorsed him. Th- that goes with the masculinity, the hyper-masculinity, the brute who can say anything. And the second phrase was, I could shoot someone and I won't lose any followers.
0: Right, right, right.
1: They will be adored because they shot, they shot someone, because nobody uh, will come after him. He's untouchable. This is very appealing to people, men and women alike, actually
0: it's such a fascinating psychological uh uh, uh distortion right uh, uh, loving violence and loving uh the destruction of your own liberties uh you know it's it's hard to get our head around that but is jeff sessions and then uh more broadly other republicans that embraced trump and trumpism is that what you have referred to in, in other contexts as the authoritarian bargain uh, this uh this bargain between let's call it a more traditional conservative right and a populist movement
1: Yes, it is. And it's a, it's a really crucial, um, I, I didn't make up this phrase, it's from economists and political scientists, but it's really important to understand, because these people can't do it alone. They need, um, it's, there's the pattern is conservative elites, um, back them, and here we had the GOP, um, but it, it extends to religious institutions and, and others who think that the strongmen Will do their jobs for them, uh, which is to bring law and order, to you know, um, turn the clock back on, on you know, on kind of feminism and all the isms that they don't like. And uh, the 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 sad thing uh, is that very often these people don't know really who they're dealing with, and they think they could control him. So it's happened to the GOP where. They endorsed Trump after all these violent statements and corruption and uh, misogyny and partnered with him. And so they are, that's the authoritarian bargain that they will um, they will get profits and um, they will be left to do what they needed to do. So Trump was doing deregulation. So big agriculture, big pharma, uh, big logging and mining, all of them could plunder and it would be okay with Trump. And in return, all these types of elites um, will stay quiet no matter what the person does or says. So the GOP was put into this kind of authoritarian submission. And it's quite extraordinary. He did it really fast. Um, If you look at the comparative history, like Silvio Berlusconi also did this, but he created his own party. It was his party from the start. He, He invented his party. Trump came in in this old and storied party in a country that only has two parties. And within just a few years, he had totally domesticated the GOP. So they stuck with him through two impeachment processes, through investigations, and even through a violent coup attempt. It, it's, it's, it's really one for the textbooks.
0: Right. But, but there was, but there was a, literally a bargain here, right? Or I'm, I'm not, that's the question, right? Is it literally a bargain? Uh the GOP got many of their policies enacted, right? Uh, cutting taxes. Uh, immigration, repression, and, and so forth. These were, uh, core ideas of, of the GOP over the last few years. And is it fair to say that there was literally a bargain here where Trump could act in this, uh, irregular fashion outside of the American norm, uh, ahistorical by American presidential standards? And in exchange for that, essentially, he gave the congressional Republicans, I guess, uh, a, a blank check to enact their policies as they saw fit. Is that, is that the bargain?
1: Yeah, that's beautifully stated, in fact. And I would only add that the bargain it to work, it can't just be the political party. It has to be the other types of elites who actually fund those. Right. Uh, for example, I call them arms dealers, because we really, we need to start seeing America in a in a very different frame and use words that some people only want to use for like military juntas and stuff. Mm-hmm. But that's, because these arms dealers, uh, the gun lobby, they, you know, they fund uh, candidates who have been Trump's staunchest supporters. And so there too, that's, that's a good authoritarian bargain. The other one is, of course, the evangelicals who have gotten enormous amounts uh, for, from Trump. Um, really, you know, the Office of Civil Rights inside the Department of Health and Human Services. Under Obama, it was for actual civil rights of black people under right. Trump it became the civil rights of white Christians. Mm. Um, there were many, many changes in, in bureaucracy and other things that um, Trump really delivered. And the other group he delivered for, were Orthodox Jews, by moving the embassy in Israel, the US embassy. And both of these groups, it was like I was watching this and it was like I was ticking off a, a, a checklist. They obliged. By bo- both Orthodox Jews and Evangelicals, they they had some declaration that Trump was put in office by the will of God. Right. And that's part. It's very important for the personality cult that the the and also you see how it f- fits with virility and he's above everyone. He can do no wrong because he's actually an expression of the will of God to guide our country to greatness.
0: Well, um, I, I remember <laughs> at some point uh, there was this. Um, I don't know what you would call it, but this, this story being told among evangelicals that Trump was a, a, a latter-day Cyrus uh, uh, emperor of, of Persia or king of Persia uh, that you know saves the Jews for some uh, personal purpose. But in the end, that's how God manifests himself in that, in that context, in that history, and that he was being compared to this historical figure.
1: Yeah, that's and I have a a whole collection of Trump uh, propaganda of paintings and um, all, all kinds of things where he's compared to this and many other figures. Now the joke the joke on these people, especially when we think about Orthodox Jews, is and this is this goes back to when these people do their bargains. They st- it's very sad. Um, it was true in you know Nazi Germany. It's true now. They stick with the ruler no matter what he does, what he says, and who he allies with. So it's only strongmen who end up with these like crazy eclectic constituencies where you have Orthodox Jews who fervently love him and they don't like anyone who criticizes him, which I know personally, and he is loved by neo-Nazis and he embraces and courts neo-Nazis. So you would think, well, don't the Orthodox Jews have a problem with him going with neo-Nazis? Well, no, they don't. <laughs> and it was the same wow. for Mussolini. It was the same for Silvio Berlusconi, who had mafiosi and housewives and the church and Opus Dei, and they all—they're all, they're all there together.
0: Wow. Well, uh, well, let me ask you about anti-Semitism for a second, because uh, there seems to be a contradiction, right? What you're just saying about uh, Orthodox Jews, at the same time, one of the major tropes in 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 well, on on, on, fa- on Fox News, definitely, but but generally speaking, in in this uh, far right environment, is Soros globalist uh obviously those are references to uh you know uh, Jews as a as a force uh, this whole obsession uh that they have um, how do you see Trump navigating uh, the fact that he has Jewish family uh, at the same time he in one of his speeches in front of a Jewish lobby group he essentially insulted all Jews for not following him blindly uh, how how does this work how how do how to make sense of that
1: It's kind of the same thing uh, I was getting at before and and to make it more explicit. So Trump has, unfortunately for us um, in America, he has a very similar personality to Mussolini, to all these guys. And it doesn't mean the outcome's the same. That's very important, right? right? I'm not comparing him saying he is a Hitler. It just works differently today. However, the psychology and temperament of this individual is very similar and they are transactional beings. It's all a transaction. They have no moral code. They will say anything to anyone. They will be anything to anybody. And so that's why when I was saying before, they will ally with, X and the opposite of X, neo-Nazis and, and Orthodox Jews. And, and so when people would say, because uh, when I would you know, speak about this, I would get angry emails and things and they'd say, how can you say that he has Jewish, uh, you Jewish know, son-in-law and his daughter converted? That doesn't matter. That matters not at all. Because all of these people, including Kushner and Javanka, as they used to be known, they're, they're also transactional. And you could ask, well, why are they hanging around if Trump was going with neo-Nazis? Isn't that weird? No, not in that world where everything has a price, everyone can be bought, and all that matters is power and deals. Because nobody in the circle has any philosophy beyond uh, money and power. So they do things, but this is why they are endlessly fascinating and they're they're hard to grasp. So to write the book, I had to kind of live in these people's heads, which was not very fun. That sounds scary. <laughs> it was. I did a lot of yoga. Uh, <laughs> to, to-
0: I think one of the great things that's happened uh, uh, post-2020 is that we don't have Trump in our face 24-7. And I heard you talk about that in particular, which is that whole uh, dominance of media being the story in the morning, in the afternoon, at night, in the middle of the night, uh, the tweets at 3 a.m. and so forth. That's actually part of a strategy, right? That's that's part of the cult of personality. That's about becoming completely uh, central to, to everyone's life. It, and it feels a lot like, a, almost like a totalitarian scheme.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you know, in in um, autocracies, what, whether they're left or right wing, um, you have the the leader's picture is is plastered everywhere. Right? It, it, you go in Beijing, you got you know, Xi's face. You had the same thing with Mussolini. Um, so it doesn't matter. It transcends which politics it is. It's all about the cult of the leader. So. Um, remaining present uh, in the digital age is you know Trump was Trump was tweeting over a hundred times a day um uh, and it wow, not realize two, it was that much yeah and especially if he in periods where his power was threatened like um, the investigations or impeachments he would be tweeting over 120 times a day and that's plus his you know his rallies and everything else that he did in calling into fox news that's why i say that his attempt, his he had no interest in governing he had an interest in indoctrinating people into the cult of trump and getting money getting them to give him money and and again these are fused so so he is a little bit th- that's a little bit um different than classic dictatorships where they are all corrupt and so you could say that they're they're fleecing the people indirectly, but Trump comes from like direct marketing also. So he needed people to see him as as heroic and be in their face twenty four seven, because every time he would do that, he would have an appeal for money. <laughs> well,
0: l- l- let's let's circle. It's, uh, it's it's such a fascinating story. Uh, um, but let's circle back to the beginning, which was uh, the revelation that Fox News. Transacted, I guess, with the truth, uh, i.e., lied on air in order to to maintain their ratings at a time when they felt threatened by further right media. Um, what what is the dynamic of propaganda? Through Fox News, is is it coordinated with Trump and and people around him? Is it something that that uh, happens because Murdoch historically has been uh, quite authoritarian in, in his in his orientation, uh, whether in Britain or Australia, in terms of the coverage? Um, how do you explain the Fox News phenomena in in the context of this uh, authoritarian bargain or or or, or 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 lurch towards authoritarianism?
1: I think the the really it's been you know fundamental that the discovery process of the Dominion uh, lawsuit has has brought out the fact that this is not a news network and it's not only because we all knew it, it lies constantly and Tucker Carlson by the way is is I don't use the f word that often but he's a fascist propagandist and also extremely skilled. He's a demagogue um in in whatever way you'd like to interpret that but what came out through um, these, and it's still, it's you know, we're still having more revelations. The thing that most haunted me is that after the 2020 election, we we learned from these discovery process that you know all of the top right wing hosts were you know no, of course they knew full well that Trump's lie was a lie. Everybody knew, but that Murdoch briefly had a moment of conscience. And he floated in a memo that um, all the, ho- the most celebrated hosts like Carlson and Hannity, they should appear together after the election and say that Trump lost. And, then, and this really haunts me <laughs> because it would have totally shut down his big lie. And, and yet that was an impossible idea. And it was quickly shelved because by then Fox had done such a good job of radicalizing the base. And building Trump's cult, um, that it would he would they would have lost their viewership, and so he chose he had that momentary conscience, and then he he, he chose profits, and so they doubled down. In fact, a, a, even and of course through January sixth, which is the ultimate, and his conscience never returned.
0: So it sounds a little bit like the bargain of of German industrialists, right? Uh, mm-hmm. In the nineteen thirties and nineteen forties, where in exchange for uh, uh, state uh, sanctioned capitalism, if you will, uh, they well they sold themselves, right?
1: Yeah, and and really, we, we I'm trying, you know, by habit one can say Fox, and then you want to say Fox News, but for some time I've been calling them a de facto propaganda arm of the GOP. And and indeed, the the other recent thing that happened, where Kevin McCarthy, who is the classic authoritarian loyalist, gave Fox gave Tucker Carlson uh, those you know many many thousands of hours of January six footage. Right. So that's the opposite of public service. He because they don't rec- an authoritarian party does not recognize public service. Authoritarians couldn't care less about. Number one, public welfare, and number two, they they don't see governance as being beholden to the people. That's gone. Authoritarian is only you're out for yourself and your power and your glory, and so you don't want transparency and accountability. So he gave giving di- that direct. Think about what that means. That that the leader of the GOP, uh, instead of making it public disclosure, gave it to a propagandist, and they're gonna cr- they're gonna construct. Because they're a party, the GOP is a party uh, consumed with a criminal cover-up for January 6th. They are in it way above their heads. They're underwater. And so this will allow Tucker, who's a filmmaker also, to construct uh, an alternate visual um, history of January 6th that will refute the January 6th committee's one. But the the transaction there is chilling. So Fox is like a de facto um, propaganda arm of an autocratic party now, which is the GOP. That's, that's the realistic way to depict this relationship.
0: All right. I, I'm at the risk of sounding uh, in- insane because of this really dark frame in which uh, we're seeing these things through. Um, is there any hope? Uh, what can Americans do to protect democracy? Or are we inexorably moving towards some sort of tumult, uh, some sort of clash uh, beyond what's already happened over the last seven years or so since Trump was in the White House?
1: No, there's lots of hope, actually. Um, In fact, and and this is also a global story, um, although we don't hear about it in the media, um, you know, we're living through a renaissance of nonviolent protest. And... Think about it. It's even places like China and Iran where you never see protests. People are are were protesting. Um, and in our country, we don't talk about the Women's March anymore. It wasn't that long ago, 2017. It was the largest protest in American history. And then it was surpassed just three years later by Black Lives Matter, which was multigenerational, multiracial. And guess how many people involved Up up to we don't have exact numbers but uh they say between 15 and 23 million people wow so we don't we don't hear about that right and then i think you know look at the midterms so yes some you know many election deniers uh, are now in the house the house is one-third election deniers so that's very serious i'm the last person to, to say that's not uh evidence of an autocratic turn however it was very groundbreaking. You know, 93 Muslims were elected. Um, there were many firsts. You know, the first openly lesbian governors, um, on and on. So again, you have these two nations, but but the other nation is there and it's not going away. Um, and and these both of these protests actually had electoral outcomes that were very. Um, in the 2021, we we got rid of Trump. So no, so those all of that is still there. Um, and the task is to, you know, have the right candidates and present and have, and hopefully the media will also present this, uh, this reality that's actually much more positive.
0: Well, we're out of time, but that's a whole other conversation, right? Because I think it was very difficult watching the media for four years, uh, maybe two and a half years, maybe three years during the Trump uh, time in the white house, uh, refusing to call lies lies. Yeah. And I thought, uh, from my own perspective, aside from it being uh, aggravating because it was so obvious, but it felt like they were uh, accomplices at some level. I don't know if you felt that in in allowing Trump to degrade th- uh, the democratic system.
1: So, sometimes they were accomplices. Uh, they were also, I believe, in shock um, because Trump made, this is another authoritarian thing, he made the, the press into a hate object and Lots of people already didn't like the, quote, mainstream media, but he made them into a political enemy. Right. And um, I think they were reeling from that. And so they've had trouble moving uh, away from journalistic conventions that are appropriate for democracy, but not for the situation that we're in now.
0: Well, uh, let's leave it there optimistic Ruth um, (laughs) Ben-Ghiat and uh, I'm a little still shell-shocked myself but thank you so much I really appreciated our conversation and uh, hopefully we'll talk again thanks for joining the x-ray thank you thank you Ruth it's pretty amazing when you interview politicians how rarely do they actually give you good information they're often very disciplined on their talking points, not moving an inch from something that they've said a thousand times before. So we came up with a different idea here, the X-ray vision interview, which seeks to find out who the real person is behind the political title. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Michael Steele, the former head of the Republican Party and MSNBC contributor. And I'm going to ask him some questions he probably has never heard before. Michael Steele, welcome to the X-Ray Vision.
2: Welcome. I appreciate it, man. This is wonderful to be with you.
0: Thank you so much, I really appreciate it. Um, You're our first uh, interviewee in this new segment, so let's see how it goes. So let me start out with the first Uh question. (laughs) Uh, If you could tell something to the founders, what would it be?
2: Oh my gosh, that's a great question. Uh, I I probably, uh, gentlemen, could could y'all step over here for a minute, please? (laughs) I'd like like to talk to you about a few things you're about to write. (laughs) Uh, I need you to be a little bit more specific about the Second Amendment. Yeah. (laughs) I need you to speak. (laughs) I need you to understand uh, that, um, you know, rights and privileges of of this constitution that you're writing are will be important to everyone so just put that in up front right <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah I, you know it's 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 an interesting question because it really does speak to um, the the idea of america being written down and how that then ultimately is lived out uh, by everyone. And it's still, it's still amazing to me um, that individuals who own slaves, who did not see the value of women participating in the political process via voting, for example, um, wrote a document that today is foundational to the freedom of African Americans and to the rights of women, you know? Um, And it says a lot that they didn't write, we the gentlemen of Virginia, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, right? Uh, But rather we the people. Um, And recognizing just how important it would be to form this union, not not as a static one-off event, but an ongoing um story um i i want to talk to them about that and let them know what they got right um probably unintentionally <laughs> <laughs> but but nonetheless got right and and then where they left too many gaps um mm-hmm. to uh a a broader interpretation that would uh, throw the country into, I think, some of the current turmoil
0: that we experience today. All right. Um, Next question. Um, What would be your major at the Electoral College?
2: (laughs) (laughs) What would be my major at the Electoral College? (laughs) Oh, Probably it wouldn't be politics. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) It would probably be something along, um, around um, something probably dealing with how people interact with each other how people you know the the, the human sciences um, a little bit probably on psychology because I need to understand some crazy people out here I, just, uh, I
0: think we could all use a, a couple of classes there uh, yeah. um, do we have too many Congress people or too few senators? The number is right. The
2: problem is the individuals who are sitting in those roles. Hmm. Uh, I, I, you know, I can have, you know, as we see, we've got non-Supreme Court justices and (laughs) their their problems. So, you know, it's not not the number. And again, it's an interesting question because for me, it kind of dovetails into the whole discussion around the age of our presidents. I don't give a damn how old they are, as long as they can speak. Right. And and communicate and get where they need to go and, and do the job, essentially. Um, so whether, you know, the 435 members, the 100 members of Congress, of the Senate, um, if you increase or shrink those numbers, um, you still have to live with the quality of the individuals that that fill the positions. And if the quality sucks... You're going to get the kind of governing that we've seen over the last uh, number of years. If the quality is good, then a January 6th doesn't necessarily happen, you know? And so that falls back on us. It goes back to, you know, that first question about the founders um, and, and understanding um, what, what they gave us when they said, we the people. Which I think are the three most important words in all of our documents, because it draws us into the responsibility of this government, and and we have to take ownership for that as citizens and account for it. it is why they used to teach us civics. It is why um, we are required to um, uh, participate, uh, and and it, in order to really form this union to a point where. Um, it functions properly. So the number isn't the problem, it's the the quality of individuals uh, in the
0: job. All right. Um, What Would you rather have the superpower of flight or invisibility?
2: Well, since I'm the man of steel, I get to do both.
0: (laughs) So that's how
2: that works. All right.
0: I got Um, flight and invisibility,
2: baby. (laughs) No, you know, um, I'll answer the question this way. Um, Probably... I've stumped you. Well, you know, I'm thinking because they're. It's interesting because there are downsides uh, to both in terms of, like, for for example, invisibility. It's great because, right, I can just show up in a room and hear. But then now I'm invading someone's privacy. See, you mm-hmm. see how I'm see, thinking here. Yeah. You, you might be problem. a lawyer. I'm guessing. right. <laughs> I'm invading someone's privacy. Um, You know, I'm being exposed or You're being, you know, sharing in information that they may not otherwise want me to know. Mm -hmm. Um, So I have an issue with invisibility in that regard. Flight, um, I mean, to see the world as the birds see it um, is is a fascinating concept because you begin to appreciate a couple of things. One, how vast it is, Mm -hmm. right? But also how connected it is. Mm. So, f- flight for me probably in the end would be uh, the one that would matter most because it would help form a better appreciation of what it means to be here. All right. I'm, I'm there
0: with you on the flight. Um, what is the quality you most admire in a politician?
2: Honesty. Mm-hmm. And honesty begins first with self. Mm. I tell all young politicians, if you're not if you're not grounded in who you are, if you're not honest with about that and, and what you believe and what you value, then don't do this. You're wasting our time. You are no value to the people you think you're gonna serve. I give you George Santos.
0: <laughs> I, I don't want him, but thank you. No, right, 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 right. <laughs>
2: well, I don't want him either. You know, but I again I you know you know just amazed at, you know, his ability to discover penicillin and write the (laughs) Constitution. I I just, you know, that kind of political leadership is what the country needs, right? Um, But no, if you're not honest, if you're not honest um, with um, yourself, then you cannot and you will not be honest with people. You just won't. Your, your, Your whole being is a lie. Um, and so that for me is is an important quality and it's something that I try to assess uh very early on in looking at politicians um and you know i've had a a few years of being able to do that and yeah. and you've seen um, a few seen a few uh so that's the, that for me is a very very important feature all right
0: who is your hero
2: um it's a 95 uh, year old woman uh known as Maybelle she's my mom oh. uh she a uh, sharecropper's daughter with a fifth grade education grew up in South Carolina um, left one segregated uh state to come to a segregated city at that time known uh, at that time uh district of Columbia um and raised um raised this kid um, in a difficult marriage uh, with an abusive husband um, who would die uh, young from alcoholism um, and her husband and, and still instilled in this kid, a belief in this crazy experiment and the value of family and the importance of being true to oneself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um you know, the joys and benefits of my life are a gift from her because she sacrificed uh, in a way that uh, made what I've accomplished possible and helped me realize that uh, even though many in this country may not value me, I have value.
0: Mm, that's beautiful. That um, I, My mom was a single mom as well who raised me, so I totally have the same hero as you do. Um, yeah. Which living person do you most despise? Oh, (laughs) damn. (laughs) We got to balance things.
2: I don't know if we got time. <laughs> that, that list is long, baby. <laughs> oh, we could start with Marjorie Taylor Greene and go and and go down further. I mean, and that's no, uh, yeah, I, I, um, yeah, okay, th- that kind of person. I mean, it actually, it's, she's she is an avatar for the kind of individuals that we could use a lot less of in this country right
0: now. You you weren't impressed by her call for um,
2: civil war? No, no, no. Uh was not impressed. And an interesting thing about her red state, blue state crazy mm-hmm. is that I don't I'm trying to figure out what she's gonna do. She realized Georgia's a blue state, right? right? <laughs> well <they're laughs> I was like dumbass, me, I what think. you gonna do? <laughs> 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 I didn't this is tough. Anyway, so yeah, i, I yeah. I mean there's, a, there's all of the all of the MAGA stuff. I, I despise it. It it is un-American. I also despise the true rhinos in the Republican Party, those who uh who look at individuals like myself who became Republicans when it wasn't fashionable, it wasn't easy, um, it certainly wasn't uh you know sexy fun, um, and who've been toiling in this vineyard for a long time trying to expand its roots and 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 grow its opportunities. Uh coming in and looking at us like we're the outliers. We're somehow wrong because we actually believe that, eh, you shouldn't put kids in cages. And no, they're not fine people on both sides.
0: And Donald Trump (laughs) is bleep. (laughs) Mm -hmm. okay all right it's a podcast you can let go here you're not on oh yeah i didn't know how i think yeah yeah you should you should say whatever you want
2: well well, he's he's an asshole and and everybody knows it and um and and those who follow him well you know that that's that's how it is but so i have i have very little use for that because it's not it's unserious um it's grifting it's performative and it's uh, harming the country in a way. Look, I, I will throw down and have, I can be the, the partisan of partisans when I need to. I've been a party chairman at all levels. Um, and so I know what that's like, but I also uh, can't lose sight of the fact that I'm a citizen. And so I have a responsibility beyond the politics um, to, to my fellow citizens and the country as a whole. And when you abdicate that responsibility, Because you want to curry favor with someone who is neither conservative nor Republican, who doesn't give a damn about you at all, Um, and um, is so megalomaniacal in his um, views, not only of himself, but of his own self-worth and value relative to others, um, that um, it becomes not just a stain, but it becomes suffocating uh, to the party in the country. Um, and so, you know, I, I refer to myself as a Motel 6 Republican for that very reason, (laughs) because I know it pisses them off, right? (laughs) And I keep the lights on, you know? Um, so, but yeah, I, I have very little regard for that. You don't get to tell me, it's just like, um, uh, you know, these, these, uh, state parties, Declaring that so and so is no longer Republican, you don't get to do that. Mm -hmm. I didn't sign any paper with you. (laughs) It's very
0: uh, Soviet Communist Party. uh, Of course, it is banishment.
2: Banishment. Uh, You are no longer, and we declared no one can refer to you as a Republican. Yeah, bite my left butt cheek.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, last question, and it's the pivotal question, I think: Uh, Scotch or bourbon? Bourbon. Great. Michael Steele, thank you so much for joining the X-Ray Vision. You got it, my friend. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's my pleasure. Thank you, sir. Well, I don't know about you, but the conversation with Ruth ben left me a little cold, a little worried. Sure, it looks like we're seeing some of the same signals that people back in the 30s saw and perhaps ignored, perhaps made believe it would all turn out just fine. And of course we know how that movie ended. Well, we're now here and history's calling us, I guess, and the American people have to decide what they want. Do they want to live in the greatest democracy in history or do they want to participate in its destruction? I know that sounds grim, but that sort of seems like that's where we're at. Anyway, thanks for joining me this week. I want to thank Nicole Legacy, Sydney Richards, and Jason Mack of our production team, and I hope you'll join me next week on The X-Ray. I'm Fernando Espuelas. For more information on this podcast, check out the and don't forget to rate and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. The X-Ray with Fernando Espuelas is an editorially independent
1: project of issue one.